Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Welcome everybody to Unsettled Objects. My name is Alison Phipps. I work at the University of Glasgow in the team that is the UNESCO Chair for Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. And there's just nothing quite like the lovely sound of our affiliate artist, Claire Robertson, um, who was just singing as you were entering the room then. It's absolutely lovely to be here and to see so many of you um, with your interest in this work that we're doing in collaboration with the wonderful, marvellous Pat Allen, who is the World Cultures Curator for Kelvin Grove Museums, working with Glasgow Life. And um, we've worked with Pat for many years since, um, I think, Pat, I first really became aware of your powerful approach to the world when you came up to me after our inaugural UNESCO lecture and said, that suit you're wearing, I want it. <laughs> um, and this was a suit that had been made by Nadenswa Todro. She's also on this call and part of this conversation, this opening conversation for Unsettled Objects. And through that has really evolved an ongoing conversation around objects textiles, instruments, and the artifacts, the extraordinary artifacts that Pat has come into contact with, and the extraordinary people working in museums, working as, as researchers, thinking about what are often quite fraught questions that surround the tangible culture that has ended up in museums around the world, but has been unsettled, and really is questions of what the intangible culture is, what the languages are, what the arts are, what the ceremonies are, what the spirits are that surround the objects that have been unsettled and have ended in our museums. This time last year, Pat was um, involved with some work we were doing in the UNESCO chair and just said, I'd really love to ask some questions that are interdisciplinary, that are with a community of people, with the museum sector, but also beyond it that really look out into the world and ask questions around what it means to have unsettled objects, what it means to try and settle and soothe objects in a different way, and to work with the many people that she has come into contact through her extraordinary work over the years and bring them into a space. So over the next three days, this is what we're doing. Pat has been absolutely formidable in curating the content 
of our work and guiding us as an expert in this work that she's been doing over the years and out of her own experience and leading us into some really amazing quirky conversations we've been having to date. And she's worked alongside my colleagues, Bella and Lauren, who are both responsible for the work we do in the UNESCO chair, Bella particularly as our arts coordinator. So as well as introducing Pat Allen, I also want to introduce our two UNESCO artists in residence, Dr. Gamali Todro and Tawana Sitole, and with them, our affiliate artist and researcher with the MIDEC project, Naden Todro. Without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Pat and my colleagues in the UNESCO chair to open up the Unsettled Objects programme. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I'm quite overwhelmed. This whole event came out of this, the discussion that Alison mentioned. And uh, it was really about around the repatriation restitution issue, which has come to dominate discussions within museums and in the wider world in all things connected to museums these days. So it's an important issue and it's actually key, particularly when it comes to the decolonization of thinking, really, particularly amongst the colonizing nations or the formerly colonizing nations. And I, get, and I think it's really important as part of the truth and reconciliation journey that we're all on. But there's so much more to objects, really, far more. And this is a bit one note. And in fact, I think it's with those people who have museum collections who are essentially the, people, the descendants of those who colonized, it's a little bit neo-colonial to assume that they're only objects are only for giving back or for keeping. They've only got a place in one nation or the other. It's not all about geography, really, um, or about politics. It's about objects have so many other meanings. For a start, objects are made by people. And they were used by people. They still are. They all are. They might be people's ancestors. They might represent those. They are people. They represent certainly art and culture and aesthetics. They represent beauty. They represent sometimes they represent fear, or maybe some discombobulation, if you like. And so we need to sort of start thinking. And we've been thinking over the year, and I have certainly alone, <laughs> away from objects that. Uh, we should be, we all look at objects in other ways and museum curators, and there are many here, we don't just think about giving things back. We look after the collections, we care for them. And we're aware that objects may have a spirit or a soul, and they slightly might be, they may be unique, they may be one of many, they may be utilitarian, but the bottom of it all, they are about people. And they are part of the community of human beings right across this world, they represent us. And uh, in a sense, we as museum workers and other and artists as well, we represent the objects that we care for. Now, these three days are divided into three themes that we that uh, I felt or we all felt um, represented. I think the theme in general. So the for today is about place. Where do objects belong? Where does an object belong? Can it belong in more than one place? Who decides where an object belongs? How do you define where an object belongs, really, and who makes that decision? So um, that is the subject we're covering today. This is a sort of, you know, our welcome to you. Tomorrow is about the relationships between people and objects and between people who make objects and who share objects. And the third day is about what happens when 
a collection or objects in particular are dispersed or fragmented and sent across the world and how that happens. Now, I don't know if you can all have a little think about objects that you might have seen in museum collections or elsewhere that really have hit home, that have had a really strong effect on you as an individual. I started my career in Glasgow museums actually as a volunteer. And anybody here who's an intern or student, there's a bit of career advice. It's always a good thing to do a bit of volunteering and show you're, you know, that you're interested. So I was a volunteer. And one of the first things I did was to go on a little tour with a visitor and the curator of the time. And we went into one of the stores and in a box that was being unwrapped were a number of dolls, Chinese dolls. Um, my, my own background is that I am a Singapore Eurasian. So, and I was raised uh, my early years in Singapore. And I had exactly the same dolls as a child. They have porcelain faces, but their bodies are soft. You can sort of, they're quite good for playing with. I remember you couldn't really take their clothes off and change them. But uh, these are the toys I had when I was four years old. And they're the, this, exactly the same toys, effectively, were in a box wrapped in tissue in a museum. And I felt, I re- not just a strong connection, I felt as if I'd been punched. I thought, those are mine. Those are my toys. That's my heritage. And I never thought about it before, not consciously. And so from this point, I thought, I'd like to work here. I don't want to just be a volunteer. I'd like to do something. I'd like to spend more time here. I'd like to get to these, these dolls need more than to be lying in a box. And um, they're probably still lying in a box and I'm not the curator of that collection, but this was the connection I had. I know that um, Nadensa was sitting there with Adinkra symbols behind her. So I don't know, is this how you felt, Gamali and, and uh, Nadensa in museums seeing Adinkra symbols? Thank you, Pat. My interaction with the Dinkra symbols in the Antillian Museum, it was a difficult one, mainly because I, you know, coming from Ghana, I know the value of Adinkra symbols and what they hold. I know the, the, uh, the stories they tell and, and the, you know, the philosophical perceptions they can bring to those who, are, who speak the Adinkra language. I think, you know, what I, want, what I would want to stress or focus on is my reaction and, and, and by extension, the, the decision Adinkra and I made to, to bring Adinkra symbols alive, you know, to, to free them from, from the storage. Uh, not physically bring them away, but make the symbols become known and used and treasured. And and for me, just just briefly, I saw the symbols in the storage of the Antillian Museum. It troubled me because it looked for me. It just it just looked as if it was it metaphored for me the 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 situation of being imprisoned and being displaced and losing one's value. And this was at the time when we were doing a range of things during the bicentenary celebration of the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. So that made it really, really poignant for me. And after using it 
to create the presentation that was asked by the Ontario Museum to do, I was still unsettled. And then we decided we need to do something about it. What can we do to, to free the symbols in the sense that it becomes, you know, it regains its value and relevance in the lives of people, you know, in Scotland. If the symbols are here, if they've been moved from Ghana and brought here, then they must carry and give and display the value they have. So that's what we started doing, taking it to schools, working with, uh, with school children to interpret, choose, print, create stories and create music out of the names and the meanings of the, of the symbols. But let me leave it to Nadine so to continue from there because there, there is the making aspect of it as well, which is also very, very important because that is what brings things alive when we begin to make. Thank you, Gameli. And yes, like Gameli said, we decided to do something about it. Initially, when we started taking it to the schools, it was a bit challenging because it's like um, Adinkra, for like Gameli said, most people who speak Adinkra language, it's a sacred language. Even though it's an object beautifully printed on, on these throw pillows, it's a language and it's a proverb, it's a, it's a lot. It means a lot to a lot of people in Ghana. I think as much as you see it displayed on the wall, when you see it displayed on the wall in somebody's house, it's got a deep value, a sentimental value, it's got so much to it. So for us to bring it to the schools, to the kids, the question is, would it have the same value? Would it have the same meaning? in as much as we want to free it from storage and make it, if it has traveled from Ghana to be here, however it came, would it be able to continue its work and its journey in its new home? So how do we make it relevant in Glasgow, in Scotland? So we started, the first school we went to, we were surprised at the way the kids welcomed it they understood the words, they picked the words themselves. And then we, we had, we do, I am in, in textiles. We use the skills that I have to do the printing. So the fun bit and bringing people together is the printing aspect of it. And then they go into the meaning. We allow them to pick the symbols of their choice. And strangely enough, whatever they pick, the explanation or the meaning of the symbol without them knowing, reflects what they are feeling at that time. Not only the beauty of the symbol, but the meaning also touches an aspect of their lives or something that reflects something about their, their family. So we realize that actually, Adinkra symbol is working, is doing what it's supposed to do. But we also realize that one of our workshops that the symbols also has connections with Chinese Mandarin community. There are some symbols in there that like they cross over in meaning and in looks, we were surprised and realized that, oh, so this has a potential of making it its life. That is how it started. Now, people use it as a corporate tool for team building and explaining things. Academics are using it in writing books here in Scotland. They use the, the symbols as thematic things. They even it, it, it comes to a point that we even use it in interviews. In, in our team, when you come for an interview, Adinkra symbol is one of the things 
you are asked to choose and explain. So it's made its way from the time Gamadi found it and decided that we should do something about it. And I think um, it still have a long way to go. I don't know if Gamali has something to add to that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, going forward, the, the most important thing is the idea that when one is unsettled, if, if an object is unsettled, there's a choice we can make to reverse that unsettledness and begin to forge ahead into the future, drawing on the values that objects have for us. I have the, the Calabash God with me, you know, and I go everywhere with, uh, with it. This God was used by my mom. She used to make corn drink, you know, we call it Aliyah. And this is the, the vessel that holds the, the drink until it's fermented and served. Now, when my mom passed, a year later, I went back to Ghana and I was looking around and I came across the board. When I saw it, it had a lot of dust on it. It was out of use. In that state, it was unsettled. It lost its value. And I wasn't going to stay in Ghana and make corn drink, but I picked it. I picked it, I cleaned it, and then I put shea butter all around it because it reminded me so much of the relationship, very special relationship between my mom and I. You know, I put shea butter around it and I was, I was rubbing it. And as I was doing that, its purpose changed. It instantly became an, a musical instrument for me. And I've held it since then. And I brought it to Glasgow. So many things have come out of the Calabash, the, the Calabash group for me and, and, for, and for our team as well. But, you know, the idea that in any difficult situation, there's always an opportunity to turn things around. So for me, these conversations and the way we have continued to work together, that is what begins to bring maybe new values, uh, new, new stability to, you know, to those objects that we identify as uncertain objects. And I think the, the work in, in museum studies and the, and the museums that we, we have in, in, in Scotland will be very much enhanced if we can explore that. If we come across an object that is uncertain, what about that object can give us you know, something that we can take in. You know, I'm sure Tawana also, you know, also have, you know, something to add to, to that. This is a very exciting uh, time, as um, Gamali is saying that, you know, what we're doing now is so important because we, we are in ritual this conversation we're having, we are, we are all searching together for something. I am going to speak a little bit about some work. Uh, I think place, people, people who guard things, people who protect things, I guess this is the, the work of museums to look after, but to guard at the same time, sort of like sentinels in a way. So th there's something interesting about seeing objects of ritual 
in a very different context from where they are. So for me, in particular, the chimbo or the walking stick, I've got one here to represent that. This one is the nyami nyami one. So these are objects of ritual. I, I, saw, I saw one in the museums, and I, I think I had the same reaction that Nadenzo and Gamli are describing of just, um, it takes time for you to digest it and, and, and see, because these objects, even in um, the chimbo I saw, it is an object which is, uh, it represents the whole family. When, when uh, young people are getting, coming out of uh, what is called childhood into early adulthood, these rites of passage that are done in ceremony, they end or are centered around the chimbo being given. So for example, the one I'm holding, this nyami nyami, it is not only a beautiful object, but it is also a long story of creation, of community, of environmental matters, all these symbols that are on this, I can't go into them now, I'll go into them in the, in the session later on. So yeah, when you, when, you see, when you see these objects, they, I think of the word activation, I think is, is the word I want to use here because these objects, they activate in me a story. So when I see the Trimbo, I think of Damtana Tsuro, Tsuro Nemwa, Damtana Tsuro, Tsuro Nemwa, Nengore Damtana Tsuro. That's a hunter's song. That would be sung before the hunters leave the homestead with the chimbo in the center of that ritual to offer protection. So there is that spiritual side of these things and the, the activation of it is around songs, around story, as it's been mentioned here. So even in their original home, if we call it that, the objects themselves, it is what they activate. It is the values that they carry and that they are conduits for that are, are really important. So I, I like to look at this issue at that level. I think we are all here to try and help each other have this conversation, which in a lot of ways there is, uh, in my observation so far for the longest time, there has been, because of this uh, process we had recently called colonization. <laughs> the, it, has, it has split us into the descendants of the ones who enacted the colonization feeling the guilt and they've been imprisoned by that guilt. And on the other side, it seems as if those who see themselves as descendants of those who were at the opposite end of that colonization consumed and imprisoned by anger and frustration. And without some coming together in this ritual that we're in now, that situation has seemed to have just continued and continued and continued. So I'm always excited at the idea of trying to sit down and at least, you know, converse and try to dissolve these things that we all carry in some way or another. I agree with most of the things we've just said here. And to be honest, I think that there are a lot of things out there, not only in museums, but sitting in places that are unsettled. But it is only unsettled when you don't know its value, when you don't know its origin and the, and the, and the purpose that it was created for. for. Like for instance, 
Behind me, you can see that the Nkra symbols being displayed on, on, on the tropilus. I just didn't select the, the, the symbols because of how they look. The way I have arranged them also tells a story. The, if, you, if you want to know the meaning of all these things, and if the objects are just sitting there in the museum, sometimes they are displayed, but the actual, the real meaning of the objects is not there. So you go to the museum, you have a look at it. You say, ah, this is from Ghana. Oh, and it is called this, and that is the end of it. What is the purpose of it being displayed? Why was it there? Why was it brought over? Was it a gift to the museum or was it an acquisition? If it was, it was the right information, Did the right information come with it to be displayed. These are some of the tiny things we are looking at so that when it's being displayed, do we carry, do we add the right information to it? Not the bitterness or how it was acquired or whether it was acquired through colonization or whatever. The object itself sitting there. How much do you know about it to display it? So if we strip up of all the colonial sentiments and everything, the object itself sitting there, what is its value to the person who acquired it? Why is it displayed there? And what is its purpose? What is it serving? Those are the things that it unsettles me because I've been to some, some museums and seen things and things from Ghana and I look at them and I know that this is not the right meaning or this is not the right thing to it. How are we correcting it from there? Even the ones that are already displayed, how are we correcting it from there to make it whole, have meaning? Because what, in the museums, kids go to the museum to learn. Are we feeding them the right information? One exception to a sort of obscure, bad museums displays with African style at Kelvin Grove, we have to put that on one side because that was, of course, perfectly done. And I hope that the information that we shared there, since um, we all did it, is, um, is as accurate as can, as can be. But as you know, when we were making that exhibition, everything has many meanings and, it's just, and we have to pick out... I suppose the story that you want to tell from the huge amount of meaning that an individual object has. And I suppose in a sense, we were telling stories um, and with every storytelling, you can, and a, a, certainly a short story like these are, you can only give a glimpse and hope to me, I always hope that an exhibition and is a precursor to more questions that people go away with more questions and answers. And that these days, of course, you know, it's easier to find those answers. But uh, I guess before, in the old days, you would have the curator maybe at a, a more important role or something, or the, the storyteller. I agree that there's a lot that can be done with a lot of museum displays, but I will, in defense of all the museum people here, say that there's always, we have very poor resources and we're having to look after an awful lot of objects, if you like, you know. I'm responsible for 23,000 objects and I haven't really seen many of them for two years. So uh, I just hope they're all right. When I did go in, I uh, went to the sacred store of sacred objects and I had a chat. So this is how I regard some objects as well. They're not ever going to be on display. They can't physically go home because we, we're not sure where their home is. 
So that's a very simple question. So I try and look after them. So I go in and talk to, you know, their human remains and sacred objects, which hold spirits and are maybe ancestors. And I have a chat and I was in in July. I hadn't seen them for two years. So I was there for a long time. I spoke to them about the, the pandemic because I felt that maybe they hadn't been aware, you know, and I was thinking, I wonder if any of them have experienced similar things. But, I, but of course, they can't talk back. And uh, in that case, I give them offerings. The originating communities have always advise me. So um, and I try and follow that. But when you're looking after these collections, you try and represent them because that's all you can do as best you can. The collections I curate and, you know, we don't often have a direct relationship the way you have with the things you're talking about today, your Christians or your Calabash or your staff. They're personal, but not every object can be personal. You've got your so you're caring for almost like a city of individuals. And when they do go out on display, it's, uh, you know, it's a great responsibility to try and tell a little bit of their story. If I was going to display the calabash, just for instance, I mean, what story would I tell? Would it be a corn beer holder? That might be one story. Would it be the story of Gamali's mother and his relationship with his mother? Or would we just have a, would have a performance with Gamali playing his calabash as a musical instrument? We could do anyone. It's or all three possibly, but the stories are slightly different. So it would be a discussion in an ideal world, and that you know it would be a discussion between, you know, the holder, if you like, the owner of, of the object, the person who is caring for it on a daily basis, um, and so on. You know, all objects have so many stories, and in museums, you know, we just it's so you know it's such a tightrope that you have to walk when it comes to displaying them, and settling them, in fact within themselves it's almost easier you know because they can you can you know they can just be there on their own or with us with friends if you like um so you know although people say they're hidden in stores sometimes you can release them in the store and in a store especially the stores that we have where you can go in and interact with them you can touch them you can hold them and you can you know you can imbue them with a sense of calm if you like and they're settled in one place I know that you came in lots and lots of times to, and we've worked together a lot to one in various workshops. You and your brother came in just after this year, 2007, we were looking for objects from what is now Zimbabwe. And your reactions were extraordinary. Do you remember that visit? Yes, uh, I think uh, it's because of our background, I think, because we are, our family are custodians of this way of life. So, yeah, so many things kind of happen immediately. Okay, we're not, we're not yet touching on relationships, but they're important here. So the invitation for us to come and work together, something has to be said about that effort. So the relationship between people and objects is, is very important and how we get to experience the objects is, is really interesting. When we think about the way forward, I think the most important thing is how we think about what we generate through the encounters. The, the idea of forging a positive way forward. So I'm interested in what those of you listening to us, when you think about, about what we are saying, how do you encounter 
unsettled object and what does it what do you take home from that you know what is your reaction how how is your life touched when you come across these young objects especially those that we have classified as unsettled objects i think the opportunity that we have just going to say broadly in in europe when we encounter objects that have their roots and their origin in cultures beyond Europe, be that in Africa or Asia or elsewhere. It's an opportunity for a couple of things to happen in the first instance. So one of those, from my perspective, is that it gives us the opportunity to be enriched by encountering a, a vision, an understanding, a cosmology, an epistemology from a whole other perspective on what it is to be in the world. That has to be enriching and that in itself is a positive. I think secondly, it gives us an opportunity to reflect on the impact of the European colonial project and reflect on the, the tragedy of that period, but also to reflect on the incredible resilience of the communities and peoples that were directly impacted through that colonial epoch and show how strong and how purposeful and how dynamic those communities were and remain. And then I think the third thing that it provides us with an opportunity to do is to really appreciate our fundamental humanity and that at a whole other level these distinctions of them and us and here and there they they exist of course at a geographic level but at a at a psychological or an emotional or spiritual level they are smoke and mirrors we're all connected in a way the objects take on a whole new power more than the one that they were originally vested with because of this capacity to bring us to reflection and connection and appreciation both of the difference that we live out the histories we've shared but the fundamental point of connection is our humanity where that comes to the fore then anything that increases a sense of compassion, connection and appreciation is a positive, notwithstanding the challenges around the fact that now we can print 3D objects. So there's a whole other consideration around whether or not it's even necessary or appropriate for these objects held in Europe to remain in Europe when they could be returned to more appropriate place-keeping spaces in Africa, in Asia, and elsewhere. And how do we feel the object's energy? How can we go away feeling its presence? Is this how empathy and respect can be generated? If you see a display and it's wrong, it please come up to the museum curator and we will talk to you and we will change it. Even though you know a little bit about it, 
it will be good before you display it to go back to its base, even with the image of it, to find the story behind it before it's being displayed. And to touch on what something that still was said about enrichment, I believe enrichment comes with healing or healing comes with enrichment. The more we look at these things and not dwell on the negative aspect of it, then we will heal. Then the way forward will be cleared. Then we'll be able to reach the point where we want to reach, where people will not have this. You speak about it as a history, but not with bitterness. You know, anytime we deal with Adinkra symbols, we are enriched because the more people's reaction to it, how people accept it, enriches us. It's healing for us. When we went back home and we were talking about us using Adinkra symbols here, and also seeing where the height Adinkra symbols have reached through the work we do, it's also enriching and healing for us anytime. So the more you engage with the objects, not only Adinkra symbol, but any object that you are dealing with, the more you know about it, the more it will help you in your work, your life, whatever it is that you are handling it for. I think our discussion is a result of the wish to carve a positive path in how we we arrive in the future about the issues that are being raised, especially the difficulties surrounding the, the legacies of objects becoming unsettled because they've been maybe forcibly moved, stolen or, or taken as uh, treasures of war. The stories around them will continue to affect us. But then we have the ability to shape the way we are affected, especially if we create an enriching environment. There is hope, you know, there's hope for the way, you know, the way we see the kind of environments we are creating through the work we do with, with subtle objects. I think there's some really interesting developments in museology around kind of trying to create more experiential connection to exhibits but it can sometimes just turn into kind of a form of entertainment maybe but I'm, I'm just thinking with such important objects where it's easier to other and not care when you don't have a connection to that object and if you can generate some kind of affective connection some kind of empathy then when you find out that that object was stolen or has not been cared for in the correct way then you feel some of that impact beyond and so I'm just really interested because that's a very difficult thing to try and do on a permanent basis in a museum setting it's not an easy question but it feels really important if these objects are, are really going to be properly respected within a cabinet or for that long-term learning as we talk about settling objects and the experience you sort of like have when you encounter an unsettled object. And I'm talking from experience because I come from the Mijikenda community. I'm the Ruma by tribe. And one of the objects that have been displaced from our community are popularly known as Vigangos. 
not so sure if any of you might know them, but I recently moved to the US. I'm pretty new here, been here for almost six months. And I live 10 minutes away from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And I recently met a gentleman called Dr. Steve Nash, who was very instrumental in repatriating 30 pieces of the Vigango back to the Kenyan people because he started to find ways to sort of like decolonize the museum and really try to learn what, what are some of the spiritual deeper meaning of certain objects within the museum. And so I was intrigued by his work. And so I went to see him and I saw the pictures and the work that they had done. And it really moved me almost to tears because to me, the Vigango represent, uh, it's a symbol of unity within the Mijikenda family. So within the Mijikenda religion, we have the unborn, the born and the dead. And so the Kigango is basically erected on the ground to symbolize the spirit of the dead. And typically we would go, the elders would go and consult it because they also represent the highest of the highest of the members in our community. You can think of it like a clergy uh, in the Christian context. So if there was a marriage, if there was a calamity, if there was any kind of advice that would need, you'd go and consult the Kigango and the spirit would speak to you. And so <laughs> it's really difficult to have this conversation of settling objects because I don't think that is something that you can bring to a museum or even tell, or like it's something that you can actually do because this object represents a member of a family and we are still a community that we are trying to rebuild. And I think as we talk about rebuilding, it's been very difficult. And I asked the question around neocolonialism, how do we move forward? Because we do talk about colonialism that happened, but we're in an era today where we're talking about neocolonialism and times have changed things a little bit different, but people have built careers around studying such objects. And I think it becomes a little bit sensitive to sort of like say, hey, can you please give it back? There's a little bit of resistance, you know? People want to just tell the story, but I'm asking the question, beyond just us wanting to settle the objects, either tell the story differently in, in museums, is, is that enough? Is there maybe a point where we reach and we say, can we also actively do our part as museums to try and seek out communities and actively have conversations with them? Because some of these people are very illiterate. And I've seen many professionals who've just gone to the villages and they've done research. And those villages who are listed as, let's say, research assistants or something like that, are very prominent members of our communities. At what point do we also actively take part in saying, I think maybe it's time for us to help them rebuild? There are very serious gaps, like economic gaps. People truly do want to rebuild their culture. For instance, us, the Mijikenda people, many of us youths are starting to come together to say, we, we are now building a database. And as I come here, I'm asking 
is it possible for people to actively share information with me about Vigangos? We are keen to collaborate with people, curators, different professions from museums to help us repatriate these back. But we also acknowledge that we have serious economic gaps that we might not be able to rebuild our culture that we've lost for a very long time. And so there are real serious questions to ask because of what has happened and the impact of us losing our culture. Most of the time in my tradition, when difficult questions come up that we don't have full answers to, we fall on, on song. And when you ask the question, one of my, my older brother's song came to mind. So if you don't mind, I'll just sing it to you. Our vocation is against all unconnectedness. It is a call to create a way again. Where foundations been assaulted and destroyed. Where restorations been made impossible simply to create a way. We, people of the fertile time, people of the way, we the life's people. So I hope there's something in that for you. We've barely mentioned the word refuge or refugee. We've barely spoken that word. But I think all of you can see the way in which, to use Gamaliel's word, we metaphorize that when we talk about people whose lives have been displaced, we also think about the displacement of spirits and objects of culture that is tangible and intangible and the way in which this changes us. There is no pure place for somebody with my hands and my skin and my history ever to stand. And so the question then becomes one which following in the tradition that Podrigo Tuma has opened out, drawing on his understanding of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, is about asking better questions together, finding better questions we can ask. In an age of neo-colonialism and in an age of capitalism and in an age of great violence, we are not the ones, if we take a non-violent way, who hold those powers but we can create other worlds together. We can look at them and sift them and turn them over. And whilst we will, I agree, never really settle those objects that have been so badly and violently unsettled any more than we can return a person who has sought refuge to a time before those dreadful things happened in their lives. There are ways in which from the fragments of what are around us, we can ask better questions and start to rebuild new lives together. I'm sitting here in front of an object in my home. This object landed and you are all now getting a very unprivileged view of my house. But if you look down at the floor here, you can see my hallway, my landing, the entrance way where I come into my home. And one day about 12 years ago, 
a whole set of bags just were sitting there when I entered my house again. And I knew that something had happened because the wrapping paper was definitely not wrapping paper that I get in Glasgow. It was definitely wrapping paper covered in the words and symbols of East Africa. So I knew something had happened in my home that is also home to others who have been refugees or are refugees themselves. When I opened it up, this was the object now hanging on the wall that was inside it. It was unsettled. It wasn't from where it was, but it was here as a gift in my home. It took me nearly four years before I actually found the same object in a museum in the Sudan and realized what it was from the inscription, the work that the experts there had done. Something really strange about sitting with an object that you knew was powerful, but you didn't know its story or its use. I asked those who brought it to my home and gifted it to me. What is this? What might I do with it? How do I use this? Where will be the right place to, to place it? Should I even have it? Is this for someone else? And they didn't really know the answers because they'd come to the UK as children and those stories hadn't yet been given to them as elders. But I found eventually this hanging in a museum in Khartoum and I began to learn what it was for and where it might hang in my home and how I might use it, including in sessions like this. And for me, it was soothing, if not settling, to have a bit more of the story that was brought to me. And I think there is quite a lot that we're doing in this space of thinking around these objects that are now looking rather loved. And this now is the object that my granddaughter picks up and cuddles first when she tries to climb my stairs, age three. That these new stories accrue and these objects take on new and strong meanings for us. Just as Gamali, Tawana and Nadensa have been telling the stories of what happens to the objects that they, as people from the South, have found in the museums of Glasgow, have picked up and held and made new things with. Some of you might want to look at um, Guides to a Traveller that Tawana has done in association with Glasgow Museums and under the production of Rhea Lewis. Some of you might want to look at some of the beautiful music that Gamali has composed and as we close off, I'll play you some of that, but where he's taken the calabash and fashioned new instruments and brought them together with others that can be found in the museums to make music of the here and now, blending the Scottish and the African traditions. We're all part of asking these different and better questions, we hope, for now, but we know they're not perfect and we know they won't give us full answers because that incompleteness is also part of what tantalizes us. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.